0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. And today I have the privilege of leading us in our study of God's word together. So I would invite you, if you have a copy of the Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the book of Daniel. We're gonna be this morning in Daniel chapter seven. And looking at verses 13 and 14, if you don't have a copy of the Bible, uh, there's a pew Bible that should be on the seat rack in front of you. Uh, And in addition, if you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper that's got the text written in it, it's got some space for notes, an outline of the sermon might help you in following along. You can just slip your hand up and Alex will come down from the back and make sure you get one of those this morning if you would like it. Uh, But Daniel 7, 13 and 14, uh, here at Trinity we do a type of teaching called expository teaching. And what that means basically is that we want to let God's word set the agenda for what we talk about in here what we study and so most often we are going to open up a book of the Bible and just work through it sentence by sentence paragraph by paragraph seek to understand it in its context and then apply it to life today and that uh, effort right now has us in the middle of a study of the book of Daniel that we're calling strangers in a strange land and this morning as we get into chapter 7 we're reminded, once again, that the world can kind of be a scary place to live in. Now, here in America, we can, we can do better than most at forgetting just how messed up the world is sometimes, right? We have lots to distract us. We have our jobs, we have our relationships, we have our Netflix accounts, all these things that we can let kind of wash over us and forget how frightening a place the world can be to live in. But you don't have to turn on the news for very long to be reminded of just how messed up this world can be. And and even if you you turn off the TV and don't ever watch the news or read the newspaper, we all have things that keep us up at night, right? We've got stresses, we've got anxieties, we've got fears, worries about the future. And what we're going to see this morning is that Daniel was no different on that front. Remember, this is a guy in Daniel who, he lived 500 years, more than 500 years before Jesus was born. As a teenager, his city was destroyed, his people were conquered and enslaved, He was taken away from his family, taken to a foreign land, Babylon, where he knew nothing of the people, the culture, and he was made to be a servant in the king's palace. He was re-educated. He was stripped of his identity, stripped even of his own name and given a new name of the culture that he was being thrust into. This is a guy who at 14, 15, 16 years old had his world turned upside down. And, And throughout his life, he continued to go through trials of many kinds. He tried to serve the king that he was under faithfully, but yet it seems like over and over again he would find himself unjustly treated, accused by those who were jealous of his position, of his influence, and even fell victim to a sham law against prayer that was specifically written to have him executed. And yet God has preserved him through all of these things as we read the story of Daniel's life in the first six chapters of the book. And now we shift to the latter half of the book, to chapters 7 through 12, and we we go from seeing the stories of this man's life to the series of prophetic visions that he had, visions about the future. And those visions could be every bit as strange and terrifying as what Daniel had experienced in his life. He sees terrifying glimpses of beasts, of bloodshed, carnage. These things are symbols of the empires of this world that war and strive after power and influence. What is the answer to those fears? Well, that's the question that Pastor Tom started to answer for us last week as he showed us in Daniel's vision in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 7 that Daniel sees a vision of the Ancient of Days, of God, highly exalted, sitting on a fiery throne. And Tom reminded us that the answer to our fears is a vision of a God who is bigger and greater and stronger than those fears. But this week we're going to discover something even more. In Daniel's visions into the heavens, when he sees the Ancient of Days, highly exalted, seated on his throne, he doesn't just see God, he sees a man there as well. Who is this son of man that Daniel sees? We're going to look at that this morning in great detail because the answer will change everything for you, for me, and for the world. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7. Read with me together verses 13 and 14. As Daniel says, Pray with me as we continue our study this morning. Our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask this morning that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us. By your grace, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your kingdom, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 13, we pick up with this series of visions that Daniel sees in the night. I saw in the night visions. And if you read back through the first 12 verses, you'll see that at first Daniel saw visions of terrifying beasts, one more frightening than another. These beasts that came up out of the sea and that devoured all kinds of flesh and trampled down the world. These things that frightened him and he saw a fourth beast that was more terrifying than all the other ones, different than all the other ones. These represent kingdoms and empires warring for power and influence over the earth, a very real reality in Daniel's day, and our day is not so different, let's be honest. We can still look around the world at current events and see nations raging for influence, for control, for power. And next week we're going to get more into the details of that piece of the vision, of what these kingdoms represent over the, uh, the interpretation that is given to Daniel of these things that he saw. But right here in the middle where we're at today, he sees a picture of God. He sees a picture of the Ancient of Days. And when the Ancient of Days shows up in verses 9 through 12, he dispatches those beasts with alarming quickness. Like the whole thing, Pastor Tom gave a really good illustration last week. The whole chapter is setting up to be like this prize fight. You have these beasts and they come up out of the sea and Daniel sees these terrifying visions and the Ancient of Days comes in and we're expecting this knockdown drag out. He said, you know, think about you order a pay-per-view fight and you get all your friends together and the wings and the popcorn and the nachos and you sit down and there's a knockout and the fight's over in five minutes. That's about how it goes here. God, with a wave of his hand, dispatches these beasts and, and they're taken away. Their influence is gone. And that dominion that gets taken away from the beast, from the kingdoms of this world, it doesn't just go in a vacuum, it gets given to someone. And here we see this vision of a son of man who is going to be given this dominion, given this power over the world. And so Daniel looks into the presence of God himself, and he sees a man there behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now I want you to consider the contrast here right off the bat is that we have seen the the powers of this world represented as beasts ferocious terrifying monsters some Daniel was able to describe as a mixture of different types of animals one of them he said I I don't even know what you compare it to it's like nothing else. And then now we come to the climax of the vision and here stands one like a son of man. It's a picture of ordinary humanity. You have the great, you have the fantastical, you have the terrifying, and then you have a man, an ordinary human being standing there? This phrase, son of man, was often used in the Old Testament to highlight humanity as opposed to deity. This phrase doesn't just pop up in this text, but it's used throughout Old Testament literature, and usually it's used to highlight humanity as opposed to the mighty power of God. A couple examples Psalm 144, verse 3 says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the Son of Man that you think of him? Psalm 146, 3 through 5, says, Put not your trust in princes, in a Son of Man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Do you see the contrast at play in those psalms? Don't trust in a son of man, frail, fragile, fallible like you and me. Put your trust in God who is unchanging, who is eternal, And so this should surprise us when we see this language popping up here in the throne room of God. Here, after the dispatching of the horrifying beast, in the presence of God, there is a man? What's he doing there? Who is this guy? This should be more surprising to us than I think it is. And I think one of the reasons is because in 21st century America, we think about this kind of stuff very differently than Daniel would have, than the people of Israel would have. Right, you know, today we're we're a lot more comfortable talking about God like the man upstairs or seeing him portrayed in a movie by Morgan Freeman. Like God is much more common, I think, to us culturally than he would have been to Daniel. In the sixth century BC, written by a Hebrew author to a Hebrew audience, Daniel would have had a very different picture and conception of God than, than I think we're tempted to have in our culture today. In Daniel's world, God is altogether other. People do not spend time in God's presence in the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, we have one recorded example of a a human being going into the very glorified presence of God, and that's Moses. And Moses gets hidden in a cave and gets a glimpse out of the opening of the cave of the periphery of God's glory because anything more would be too much for him. It would kill him. If you remember the solar eclipse that we had last year, you know, don't stare directly at it, it will burn your eyes out. That's kind of the idea when we see the picture of God in the Old Testament. In fact, nearly everything in the Old Testament in the forms of rituals and worship are meant to communicate that an insurmountable barrier existed between God and man. Right, If you ever spend any time reading the Old Testament, you see there's rules, there's ceremonies, there's laws, even the fact that the temple itself had concentric courts built within it that were more and more restrictive on who could enter as you got to the center. And in the very center where God's presence dwelt, only one guy, the high priest, was allowed to go in, and only one time a year at a specified time, and never without taking the blood of a sacrifice in there. All of these things meant to communicate God is God and we are not. And we don't come to him on his terms. There is a barrier that exists there. Now place yourself in that world, in that frame of mind like Daniel would have had, and then read verse 13 again. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. There is a man in the presence of God. Let this strike you as odd this morning. We're likely to read this whole thing backwards. See, we're confounded and confused by the beast, and we want to know what do they represent, and what's the horn, and what's the third beast, and is that this kingdom or that kingdom? But the notion of a man showing up in the heavens really doesn't elicit much of a shrug from us. You see, to Daniel, this was likely the most puzzling part of the entire vision. Who is this? How can there be a man, a son of man, in the presence of God? Well, that's a big enough question to ask. But wait, there's more. Let's look at verse 14. Because we see that not only is there a man in the presence of God, but that man has the properties of God. This man is described and spoken of in terms that are only ever used to describe God himself in all of Old Testament scripture. This happens particularly in verse 14, but it's actually present from the very start in verse 13, where Daniel says that he comes with the clouds of heaven, right? With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you right now. And and as we read through this, and really the rest of the book of Daniel, as we read Bible prophecy, there's a lot of times where it's hard to really grasp and get the understanding of what's going on. And I think we all know that. I think we're all comfortable with it. And I think that's why we're kind of scared to open passages like this, because I don't know what he's talking about. What does all this mean? Beast and son of man. And let's just move on to something easier. And I think one of the reasons is that a lot of times we have the idea that in order to understand prophecy like this, it's almost like there's a code we have to crack, right? Like if I just arrange the right vowels and letters and, and numerical formula, then maybe I'll be able to figure it out. I don't know about you. I'm not a great code breaker. So I don't know if I have any shot at unlocking this, if this is, broken by some sort of code. I don't think that's the way Bible prophecy is at all. I think the biggest barrier for us in understanding stuff like this is context. Right? We can understand the words on the page, but without context, it's hard to grasp the significance of what is being said. Let me illustrate for a minute. Quick show of hands. How many people here would say that you are a pretty decent baseball fan? Follow baseball. couple, not too many. All right, well, this will work out great then. What if I told you That in 2001, Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs in the season. Everyone in this room understands what I just told you. You get what the words mean. You know probably what a home run is. But if you don't know anything about baseball, that information doesn't mean much to you. It's just data. What is the significance of what you're telling me? Well, what if I told you that it was the all-time record in baseball history? dating back from today all the way back to the 1800's when they first started keeping track of such things. Well now you got a little better idea of of why it's significant. What if I told you that Bonds was using steroids during his career? Well that colors your understanding even a little bit differently. What if I told you the highest total anyone has ever put up without the cloud of steroid suspicion is only 61? When I give you that additional information it's one thing to say Bonds hit 73 home runs that's data When you get the context, you understand why that data is significant. I'm going to suggest to you that this text this morning functions in a lot the same way. When I say, and when the text tells us, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. You understand those words. You know what they mean. You can probably picture in your mind this vision of a man coming on the clouds. But why does that matter to you? What am I supposed to get out of this? Well, to do that, we need to look at the Bible with more context. Understand it, not just this text in uh, in isolation from everything else, but how does this fit with the greater theme of the Bible? Is this just flowery, religious-sounding language? I would say no. First up, contrast again. Contrast this appearance of the Son of Man with the appearance of the four beasts that we saw last week. All four of the beasts were described as coming up out of the sea. Now, to the Hebrew people, they were not a seafaring people. They didn't like to sail. They weren't big fans of the ocean or the sea. And so in Hebrew literature, the sea is often used as a metaphor for the world, especially the Gentile world, opposed to God in all of its... Uh, unrest and all of its frightening uh, turmoil. And so when the, when the Bible uses the imagery of the sea it's usually an imagery for rebellion against God in the world. And so all four of these beasts, it makes sense they rise out of the sea, right? That These kingdoms, these graphs of power come from a world that is opposed to God that rebels against him. But the beasts come out of the sea the son of man comes from the clouds he doesn't come out of the world, he comes from another world. The idea here is to highlight this is something altogether different. He's not just another one in the line of these beasts and empires. This is someone from beyond that is outside of this world in all of its schemes. Not only that, but the imagery of coming with clouds is imagery that is associated in the Old Testament with what's called a theophany, an appearance of God. Every single time. Uh, theologian J.A. Emerson put it this way. He said, The act of coming with clouds suggests a theophany, a vision of Yahweh himself. If Daniel 7.13 does not refer to a divine being, then it is the only exception out of about 70 passages in the Old Testament. Let's give you an example of some of those where cloud imagery shows up in relation to God. Exodus 16.10 says, As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, They looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Psalm 97, 1 and 2 says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Psalm 104, 3, He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Isaiah 19:1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud, and he comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Nahum 1:3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. We could go on and on, but I think the point is clear. When you read the Old Testament, the imagery of clouds and one who comes with clouds is imagery reserved for God. And so when Daniel would have heard this and seen this vision, that there is a son of man coming with the clouds, the imagery would have been unmistakably divine. Daniel would have understood, wow, that not only is there a man in God's presence, but the man is coming on the clouds. The only one who ever comes on the clouds is God. What, What is going on here? So the picture of the Son of Man's arrival is a picture of divinity. But what comes next in the vision? Well, verse 14, we're told that he is given kingdom, a kingdom and dominion. right? What the beast clawed and raged and fought to possess is just freely given to the Son of Man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. He's given this dominion that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Well, that sounds pretty remarkable already, right? That This is a kingdom that is universal in its expanse. All kingdoms, all nations, all languages. But this is actually, I would say to you, even more remarkable than it might seem. Because we're told that this is so all people will serve him. This is not just the language of a household servant. You know, if you're thinking Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey, like this is not just we're going to serve him like a butler serves a master or a king is served by his servants. This language for serve, again, is divine. The language, the Aramaic word here for serve that we translate as serve is Pelah. And it shows up nine times in the book of Daniel, this word gets used. Every other time, It refers to serving or paying reverence to either a deity or a supposed deity. A few examples, Daniel 3, 12. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are being accused in the episode of the Fiery Furnace, the accusation is, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve, Pelah, your gods, or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response in Daniel 3.17. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, Pelah, is able to deliver us out of the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Let's go to the episode of Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel 6.16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, Pelah, continuously deliver you. Every time this word gets used in the book of Daniel, it's in relation to a deity or one who at least is pretending to be a deity in the, in the sense of the Babylonian gods. This is a word of much more significance than just human service. In fact, some versions, if you have a copy of the Bible, the, uh, the NIV, it even translates this word as worship where it shows up. And so when we're told here that he's given a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him, This is a picture of this son of man receiving worship from the whole earth. And in the Israelite mind, the notion of a man receiving worship like God would have not only been a foreign idea, it would have been blasphemous. You don't worship created things. You worship God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet here is this vision of a son of man given a kingdom by God so that all people in the earth would worship him. Only God is portrayed in the Bible as worthy of receiving worship. And yet here, the Son of Man is given dominion precisely so that he will be worshipped. Can you feel the strangeness growing in Daniel's mind as he sees this? What's he to make of it? But even more comes to light here. Notice the last truth that is emphasized in verse 14, namely that his dominion and his kingdom are eternal in nature. They never end. Verse 14 that all people's nations', languages should serve him, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, eternality is God's domain, not men. In fact, if you've been with us for our study through the book of Daniel, you'll know that one of the main themes of the book so far has been the fact that all earthly kings, all earthly kingdoms, all earthly powers, no matter how great and awesome they might fancy themselves to be, inevitably crumble in the face of God's eternal and divine power. When God says, you're done, you're done. It doesn't matter how great you think you are. In fact, we've seen one of the chief characters in the book, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He's been through a lot, including a cycle of personal insanity, all designed to show him and convince him that only God's rule is eternal. Only God rules forever and ever. Only God has a dominion that has no end. Namely, God is God, you are not, Nebuchadnezzar. That's the big lesson that he's learned throughout the book. Daniel 4, 34 and 35, at the end of that cycle, Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it, and he says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And yet here, it is this Son of Man of whom it is said, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Again, eternality, universal rule, those are things that belong to God and to God alone. It's been the whole point of the book so far. But when the Son of Man shows up, he is given a kingdom that all people would serve and worship him, and that kingdom will be eternal. It will never pass away. The Son of Man will rule all of the world in an eternal kingdom. So what on earth are we to make of this? I can imagine Daniel at this point being just flustered. What what am I seeing, God? What what are you trying to tell me through all of this? Because he wouldn't have known what to make of this. In fact, the text tells us so repeatedly. One of the themes that's going to come up over the rest of the book as Daniel sees these visions is that he often doesn't understand them. And often he's really frightened and terrified and, and, and and filled with unrest because of them. He doesn't know what to do. But again, remember what I said earlier, what is key to understanding things like this in the Bible? Context. And we have far more context than Daniel ever did. And that context changes everything about the way that we see this text. Because 500 years later, a man would be born who would claim to be precisely this son of man. His name was Jesus. He was born in a podunk town in Israel, He lived for 30 years a rather unremarkable life as a carpenter's son. And then at age 30, he started traveling throughout Galilee, throughout Judea, and teaching about God, talking about the kingdom of God, which he said was at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said remarkable things, and people started listening, and people started following, hanging on what he had to say. He didn't speak like a mere human teacher. You read the words of Jesus in, in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He didn't talk like just your average Joe that's come up with some new spiritual principles. He spoke like somebody who carried real authority, who carried divine authority. And that brought him into conflict with some of the religious leaders of his day. We thought, who does this guy think he is? Like, has anything good come out of Nazareth, his hometown? That's one of the things that they would lobby up against him. But he performed miraculous signs to back up his big talk, right? We have accounts of him healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, even raising the dead. Some people called him teacher. Some people called him prophet. But what was Jesus' favorite title for himself? What was the most common thing that Jesus referred to himself as? Son of man. Inevitably calling people's mind to this. And because he frequently clashed with those religious leaders, they ultimately sought to get rid of him. They wanted him out of the way. And their ultimate plan was to accuse him of blasphemy, right? Look, he's getting awful close to equating himself with God. That is against our law. We need to get him off the scene. And so he's put on a sham trial. The priests come in, they listen to false witnesses come in and talk about twisting Jesus' words to make him look really bad in front of the people. They get it set up with the Romans so they can have him executed. And at this trial, Jesus doesn't say anything in his defense. He doesn't respond to his accusers. He keeps his mouth shut. And then finally, a question is posed to him by Caiaphas, the high priest. I want you to listen to this exchange in Matthew 26, 63 and 64. The high priest said to him, to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Maybe you've read that text before in Matthew. I bet after this study today, you'll never read it the same way again. Because Jesus is calling their minds. These are their religious leaders, their teachers. They knew Daniel 7. They knew this vision. Jesus is saying, that guy, that son of man that comes on the clouds of heaven, that's me. That's me. And the response of the high priest is to to tear their clothes, to become enraged. They say, you for now heard it. He's blasphemed. They knew exactly what he was saying. It was very, very clear to them. Matthew 26, 65 continues, Then the high priest tore his robes. He said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? But while Daniel 7 sees the Ancient of Days swatting away these four terrible beasts with a wave of his hand, the Son of Man didn't destroy the unjust court. He didn't rescue himself from their slander, from their accusations. He was led before a Roman trial. And despite the governor saying he found him completely innocent, He was swapped for a condemned murderer at the behest of a bloodthirsty crowd that wanted him crucified. He was hung up on a cross, crucified, one of the most cruel methods of execution ever devised by the human mind. And there, this son of man died. And he was placed in a grave, apparently ending his story in a very different manner than this one riding on the clouds that his followers were expecting. Why? Why would the story of the Son of Man go this way? That doesn't fit with what we see here in Daniel 7, does it? Well, the answer to that why question is on the postcard that maybe you received in the mail this week. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, maybe the most famous verse in the whole Bible. You see, that barrier of separation that we said earlier existed in the Old Testament world between God and man, all those walls that were put in place to emphasize you don't come to God on your own terms, that gulf existed because of our sin. And sin is a word that is much more likely to be used for like eating a piece of chocolate cake when you know you shouldn't in our culture today than anything else. But when the Bible talks about sin, it's, it's talking about our moral failure our evil, our wickedness, our rebellion against God. All those times that you and that I have said, you know, God, I know you think, and I know you say I should do this. I think I'm going to do this instead. God created us to enjoy fellowship with him forever. And all of us, from our first parents, Adam and Eve, all the way down to each and every one of us in this room have said, no thanks, I like my way better. And we've rebelled against him. You see, we're not the good guys in the story. We're much more on the side of the beast, hungry for power, for influence than we are with this son of man. But Jesus came and he died in order to take my rebellion on himself and your rebellion on himself and pay the penalty that I earned, even though he's done everything perfectly. He never sinned. He lived a perfect life. He loved perfectly. He did all of the things that I don't do. Loved everyone that God put in his path, perfectly obedient. And just as surely as a criminal earns his sentence, we've earned that sentence on ourselves. Jesus did not. Even the, the one of the criminals crucified next to him says, Hey, this guy, you know, we're getting exactly what we deserve. This guy does has done nothing to deserve this. Even the governor said, He's innocent. I wash my hands of this man's blood, it's on you. But Christ took my sin on himself, and he died for me. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You see, the Israelites expected the son of man to come and set up his kingdom. Their expectation of Messiah was, hey, he's going to come in riding on the clouds. He's going to defeat all our political opponents. He's going to set up his kingdom right here, and we're going to have some say in the world once again. And after all, I mean, as we'll see next week, Daniel 7 ends with the kingdoms of the earth being inherited by the saints of the Most High forever and ever. This Son of Man is going to receive the kingdom and he's going to give it to all of God's people. And they're going to rule and reign alongside of him. And so the Israelites think, hey, we're the good guys, we're God's people, he's going to come kick everybody out and set us up. But like I said, we're not the good guys. Even though we might fancy ourselves quite respectable and righteous, you know, I'm a pretty good guy, I don't cheat on my taxes, never killed anybody, I've never said that many bad words to my neighbor, we all are under the weight of condemnation. Go through the Ten Commandments. Go home for homework today, go through the Ten Commandments. See how you do, one through ten. If you make it past one, then call me and we'll talk. Because I'm not going to. And yet, Jesus died because I deserve to die. His blood was in my place and yours freely offered to redeem men and women and children from our rebellion and bring us into his family, into his people who will inherit the kingdom with him. Jesus' arrival on the scene, the Son of Man, was not going to be a one-man show, but he's bringing a whole, countless host of people with him. And that invitation goes out to the ends of the earth. His death was not the end. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Jesus is not dead. That's why we're here this morning. He rose from the dead, really, literally, bodily, with actual eyewitnesses and evidence that I honestly have never heard a decent alternate explanation for. If you've got one, let's talk after the service. Let's have coffee this week and talk about the questions. But the Bible says he rose from the dead. And in doing so, he demonstrated that he's more than just a man. Right? Anybody can show up and say, hey, I'm that guy that was talked about in Daniel chapter 7 so you guys should all follow me and listen to all the cool things that I have to say. Why why should you believe that? But if that guy dies and rises from the dead just like he said he would, well, that changes the way we perceive things, doesn't it? Now you have my attention. Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and proved he was more than just a man. He was the son of man, and the world now belongs to him. 1 Corinthians fifteen puts it this way: It says, "By for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order: Christ the firstfruits, and that in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end." when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. His kingdom has come and it's still coming. Those who belong to Christ has gone from 11 scared guys in a locked upper room in a backwoods corner of the Middle Eastern desert to millions and millions of people around the globe. You and I sitting here in Crestwood, Kentucky are the recipients of this gospel. We have entered into this kingdom the same way that they did. We can enter by faith. We put our trust in him. We turn to Christ and say, I want to leave my sin behind. I want to repent. I want to go the other way. And I want to trust that that this son of man that we saw in this vision today can take care of me, can present me before God, can can give me eternal life that he promised one day Christ will return. And this time he will have all the splendor pictured in Daniel 7. Remember his words to the high priest. From now on, you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Until that day comes, when he returns, his gospel goes out. An invitation to become his. Not by being righteous enough, not by being religious enough, not by being smart enough. If, if those are the benchmarks, then let's just pack this in and go home. I'm not going to meet that. And how do you have any confidence that you will either? The invitation is to become his by faith. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What is faith? Faith is trusting that he is who he said he is. And that his sacrifice can bring you peace with God by turning from your rebellion and your sin and turning to him. The Bible says we come to God with faith like a child. That doesn't take much. It just takes a simple trust that that God is going to take care of me and that he can do what he said he's going to do. So the question is this morning, do you belong to Christ? Are you believing in this son of man? Have you ever encountered him? Have you ever really thought about this before? Jesus in our culture can mean so many different things. Everybody's got their own idea of what Jesus is like. Is he a a guru? Is he a good teacher? Is he a nice example for us to follow? Is he a good luck charm that you can pray to when you want to get that promotion at work? Like, what is he? The Bible says he's the son of man. He's God himself prophesied from the beginning to come and save us from our sin. And now he has been handed a kingdom and a dominion that will never end. And he invites you into it and me into it. Do you belong to him this morning? Have you ever embraced him by faith? If you haven't, then let's let's start that conversation this afternoon. If you've got questions, what what does that mean? I'm interested, I want to follow Jesus, but but i I got questions about this and this. Grab me, grab one of the other pastors, grab somebody here after the service, and let's talk. Let's set up a time and grab coffee this week and, and, and answer your questions. Let's hear your doubts. But the invitation goes out to you to know this Jesus who is far more than our culture gives him credit for. Maybe you say, you know what, I have believed in that Jesus. I have tried to follow him. The question is, are you you believing today? Are you following today? Christianity is not something that we just do, we check it off the list and we go about our business. This changes everything. If Christ was raised from the dead, that changes the way that I parent that changes the way that I love my wife, that changes the way that I do my job, that changes the way that I pursue my career, that changes the way that I am at school, that changes everything. Because if I I believe that this guy, Jesus, is who he says he is, is this righteous son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, that I'm going to want to hear what he has to say about those things. I'm going to want to follow what he has to say. And it's so easy to get caught up in the nine to five, in the Monday through Friday, And all of these fears and anxieties and worries that we have in life and lose sight of that maybe this morning you need to just say you know what God help me to focus anew on Christ and to be the employee the husband the father the wife the mother the son the daughter the student whatever it is that he wants me to be you got things in your life that you know and Jesus would want me to do this differently This morning is a great time to start. And Jesus doesn't doesn't do that just by saying, hey, go out, do better, try harder, see you next week. But he promises to dwell within us, to give us his spirit, to be with us and empower us to live the life that he calls us to live. I can't do it on my own, and you can't either. We'll drive ourselves crazy trying if we don't do so in the power that he provides. How does that work? What does that look like? Well, that's what we're doing here at Trinity Church together. We exist to be a family of people who have done exactly that, who have trusted in Christ and who walk together in this world growing to be more like Jesus and introduce other people to him. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here. But we're not primarily concerned with you visiting a church. We're we're concerned primarily with helping you know Jesus and know how to follow him. And if you want some people to walk alongside to help you in that, we would love to have that opportunity. That's what we're trying to do for one another. The invitation this morning is to come, to trust and to follow. And if you are taking up residence, continue building a home here. Continue to live and invest your time and energy and effort and resources for the kingdom and and not just for yourself. And let's encourage one another in that effort today. Let's pray together. God, help us to see Jesus rightly this morning. Help us to see not just a humble Christ who came, who came to serve, who gave himself for our sins, but help us also to see the risen and exalted Christ who rules and reigns forevermore, who has been given authority and dominion and a kingdom that will never end. God, don't let us see just one side of the coin. And Father, when we fear, when something happens this week that upsets our calm that overturns our plans, may we find our solace, our strength, our comfort in the fact that Christ is on the throne and he is with us. And nothing in this world can separate us from the love of Christ. God, I pray that you would call us close today, that you would remind us of who you are, of what you've done. If there's anyone here who does not know you, who has never considered these things, never taken that first step of faith, God, I pray that you would work in their heart, that you would draw them to yourself, that you would show them your glory and your goodness and your great love. God, for those who have taken that first step but are struggling with the steps they have to take this week, God, may you give grace. May you remind them of the truth that you give us in your word. Build them up, strengthen them for whatever they have before them. and Help us to walk in faith day by day. God, as we continue in our worship this morning, may we not just sing, but may we overflow with thankful hearts at who you are and what you've done. May we be amazed today. God, give us wonder and help us to have the strength we need to honor and glorify you in all that we say and all that we do. God, may we lift up not just this church, God, may we lift up your kingdom the ends of the earth, for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.